I'm a United Methodist pastor. I'm also the executive director of Urban Ministry. Uh, I see some familiar faces, some new ones. I'm so thankful for you. If you hear me say anything today, let it be thank you. The people in this church, Bluff Park, have been such an amazing supporters of urban ministry and all of the work that's happening in West End. And in fact, this church is going to sponsor a We Build House. Uh, It's a program we have where young adults can learn construction skills through renovating homes. When they graduate, they get to lease to own the home interest-free, and many of them will be the first homeowners in their family. So thank you so much. Our scripture today comes from the last chapter of the Gospel of John. This is chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through 13. We'll read all the way through 14. Any kids that want to head, is it Alyssa? Melissa, Melissa, head with Melissa. Come on down. All right, John 21. Verse 1 through 14, hear these words. And this, this happens after Jesus is crucified. This is the last time he, is, he appears to his disciples uh, after the crucifixion. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know it was him. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered, no. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked. He jumped into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat behind him, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone to shore, they had a char- Jesus already had a charcoal fire there with fish on it. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net uh, of large fish. There were 153 fish in the net. And even though there were so many, the nets did not break. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That was the best meatloaf I ever had. Better than my mama used to make, and hers was good too. God rest her soul. That's what Butch said the other day when he came to Urban Ministries Wee Cafe. The food is that good. Some people say it's the best meal they've ever had. Some folks say it's Birmingham's best kept secret. Now, this one guy, I don't know if I believe this, but he said when he drank Lawanda's sweet tea, 
All the windows shot up, followed by a rush of great wind. Sunlight glow filled the room, and a voice from heaven thundered down, This is my sweet tea, and I am well pleased. Now, like I said, I'm not sure if I believe that. It's a little sweet for my taste. I have to cut it with water. The Wee Cafe is a beautiful place to eat lunch. We stands for West End. And when you eat at Wee Cafe, you stand with West End too. Now, West End doesn't have the best reputation. Usually when you hear about West End, it has to do with crime and stuff like that. It's not often known by its restaurants, but things are changing. The Wee Cafe, it's a beautiful place to eat lunch five days a week. And it's a model that's built on trust. Everyone who comes eats, but everyone has to pay or give something too. When you come down the hallway to the cafe, there's a black metal box mounted on the wall. If you're paying cash, you pay what you can in that box. The only ones who know how much you put in there is you and God. If you want to pay with a card, it's the same way. There's an iPad. You choose how much you pay. If you have no money... Because sometimes when the fall to rock bottom hits us so hard we break our legs, there's a basket of volunteer cards. You can pick up a card, write how you're going to serve the neighborhood to make it better, sign your name on the back saying you'll do it within seven days, and you can pay for your meal through volunteering in the community. I've never been anywhere like it. The food is delicious. The people are great. Usually when you come in, there's some smooth jazz playing over the speakers. Sometimes I don't know if I'm sitting next to a lawyer or somebody struggling to pay their rent. And you know what? It doesn't matter. It's beautiful. The other day, I, uh, I paid $65 for my meal at the Wee Cafe. And I'm still trying to work out how I feel about it. I was working the pay counter before that, and a young woman came in who I know really well. Now, she hadn't had a chance to eat there yet because she works during the day, Monday through Friday. She hadn't been able to come. I also know that two months before this, she came to Urban Ministry asking for help with rent and utility assistance. Her lights and her water had been shut off. I knew that she lives with her brother and her mother. She's the only one that works, and they have a household income of $25,000 a year. So when she came down the hallway, I gave her the same warm welcome I gave I give everyone. I said, hey, welcome to the Wee Cafe. If you want to pay in the box, it's cash, whatever you can. If you want to pay uh, through volunteering in the neighborhood, you already do that all the time. Your meal's already covered. Just sign your name. Or you can pay with a card. And she said, Pastor, I'll pay with a card. So I turned the iPad around, and there's presets. It says $10, $20, $30. And I said, now look, there's a button here that says other. If you push that, you can type in whatever amount you want to. Remember, it's pay what you can right now. And she said, okay. She clicked other. She typed in $13 and added a $1 tip. I turned the iPad around and saw $14. And I said, wow, that's really generous. Thank you. She kind of blushed and laughed, and she said, Pastor, I believe in this place. And then she turned to walk and get her meal. And as she walked away, I whispered to myself, I thought I believed in this place. 
Then I pulled out my phone and I did some quick math. I make $65,000 a year. Caitlin, my wife, makes 50. That's a household income of $115,000. I took that, I multiplied it by 14, what she paid for her meal. Divided that by 25,000, her household income. $64.50. That's the equivalent of what I would pay if I believed in urban ministry as much as she did. So the next time I came to the Wee Cafe, I wasn't happy about it, but I paid $65 for my meal. Now, there's only one other time in my life I've paid $65 for a meal. Caitlin and I got a a gift card, a $100 gift card to Ovenbird for our 10-year wedding anniversary. We'd never been to a restaurant like it. We dressed up, made a date out of it. It's a really, really fancy, uh, beautiful restaurant. The food was absolutely fantastic. It was wonderful. When all was said and done, we paid $65 each for our meal. Now, according to the kingdom of the earth, a meal at Ovenbird is worth more than a meal at the Wee Cafe. But according to the kingdom of heaven, it's got to be the other way around. There's this ancient Jewish practice, this back when first century when Jesus was around, when rabbis would read the Torah to children, they would give the kids a jar of honey and the kids would dip their fingers in the jar of honey and taste the sweetness of the honey while they heard the word of the Lord. And they would build an association that the word of the Lord is sweet. Well, after the cafe opened, Caitlin and I started this same practice at our house. We just don't use, uh, we don't use honey. We take them over to the cafe. We put some Lawanda sweet tea in sippy cups. And, and then I just read them the gospels a little bit. And I tell you, it's just as sweet. What if we lived on earth, but according to heaven? What if we paid the same or more for a meal at the Wee Cafe than we did at Ovenbird, Chafon Fawn, Automatic, wherever you like? What if we paid more for a glass of Lawanda sweet tea than we do for that Napa Valley bottle of wine? Things would start looking different. Just if the people in this room did that, Birmingham would start looking different. But you know, even though we know the truth about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, it's really hard to live that way. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of John. Jesus appears to his disciples for the third time after his crucifixion. And even though they know the truth of the resurrection, it's hard for them to live that way. The disciples' response to resurrection is relapse. Let me recap the story. So according to John's gospel, Jesus is crucified. And he's on the cross and he looks down and he says, I I thirst. And so they sponge him up some wine on a hyssop branch. It touches his mouth and then he says, it's finished. He breathes his last breath and he dies. They take a big spear and they they stab him in the side and blood and water come out. They pull him down from the cross. They take him and they throw him in an empty tomb in a garden. Early on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. 
She sees that the stone is rolled away and the body is gone. So she runs to find Simon Peter and the disciple that Jesus loves. Now, now John talks about this disciples all the time, the one who Jesus loves. We don't know who it is. So for our purposes today, I'm going to say that's you. All right. So Mary runs and she tells you, she says, Simon Peter, his body, it's gone. The stone is rolled away. So you and Simon run as fast as you can to the tomb and you look in there and you're devastated. The stone is rolled. All you see is clothes and linens lying there. So you drop your heads and you leave. You leave. But, but Mary, she can't go yet. She sits down beside the tomb and she starts to weep and she's crying and after a while, she, she turns around and she looks in the tomb and there's two angels in there, one sitting at the head of the bed and one sitting at the foot. And they say, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord and I, I don't know where his body is. And then she turns around and there's a man standing there. It's Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. She thought him the gardener. And he says, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? At this point, she gets a little mad. She says, listen here, if you've taken the body, please just tell me, just tell me where he is. And Jesus says, Mary. And at the sound of her voice, her name, the way that he said it, she recognized him. Later that night on the same day, Jesus appears to the disciples. It says they're locked in a room in fear of the Jews. Did you catch that? The, the Jews, Jesus is a Jew, the disciples are Jews. So often it's the people of our own religious tradition that scare us the most, right? So they're locked in there in fear of the Jews. Even though the door is locked, Jesus appears to them and he says, peace be with you. And boy, you know they needed it because fear will drive out peace faster than anything else. And then, he's, then it says that he breathed on them. And in that breath, they received the Holy Spirit. And he said, now that you've received my breath, you have the power to forgive sins and the power to retain them. And he leaves. Now, Thomas wasn't there, right? So he came home a little later. I, I don't know. I like to think he was out getting groceries. Somebody had to do it, which means one of two things. Either A, he was the bravest, or B, he drew the short straw. But he wasn't there. And so they tell him what happened. They said, Thomas, Jesus came, he did this. And he says, this isn't a time to joke. Don't tell me that. Finally, he says, listen, I won't believe it unless I see it with my own eyes and I touch those wounds with my own hands. Well, one week later, they're in that room. I think it's the same Greek word, but I like my Bible says the doors were shut. Right? Maybe they made some progress, right? They were locked the first time. Now they're just shut. Even though the doors were shut, Jesus appears among them. And he says, Thomas, peace be with you. Come and feel it. And don't you know he did? But he didn't ask Jesus to breathe on him. I always thought he should have done that. says a few weeks maybe they don't tell us how much time a few weeks pass maybe a few months and the disciples finally go outside first they were locked in the room then the doors were shut now they've mustered up the courage to go outside but what do they do 
They go back to the trade they knew before they met Jesus. Relapse. They start fishing. And so they're on the shore, you know, they're out there all night fishing. They had to fish at night because back then the nets were so big and bulky, the fish could see them during the day. You couldn't catch anything during the day. So they had fished all night long, hadn't caught anything. The sun came up. There's a man on the beach. They don't recognize him, but it's Jesus. And he calls out, have you caught any fish? And they say, no. And he says, well, cast your nets on the other side. And when they did, they hauled in so many fish, it almost capsized the boat. And you, you recognized that phrase. It was the same one that he used when he called you. And the, fit, the catch of fish confirmed it. And so you yell out, it's the Lord. And Simon Peter, he's so excited, he throws his clothes on, jumps in, swims to shore. You all bring the boat to shore right behind him. As you get there, he's already got a fire going and he's cooking fish. He sends Simon Peter back to get the nets. There's 153 fish in there, but the miracle is that the nets didn't even break. So you all gather around the fire and he, he, he breaks the bread and the fish and he passes it out to you and you have breakfast. You don't recognize this guy. You know it's Jesus, but he doesn't look like him. And when he breaks the bread and gives it to you, I bet you thought about the Last Supper. It made you smile. And Simon Peter, when he tasted that fish, maybe he thought, man, that's the best fish I've ever had. Better than when he fed the 5,000. It's like having a little bit of Jesus back here with me. Have you ever noticed how humble the resurrection is? One of my professors used to love to point this out. Have you ever thought about it? Jesus only appears to people who already know the truth. He really only appears to people who already believe in him. The disciples, Mary. Yeah, you know, if it was me, I'd have done it different, right? If I was raised up, I would go back to the crowds, preach a sermon hovering about three feet off the ground, and I would knock their socks off. And then I'd head over to the temple where the Pharisees and all those sell out, you know, Pharisees and money changers. Oh, and I'd let them have it. I'd give them a good scare. And then I'd make my way over to Pontius, and I'd say, hey, Pilate, remember me? That's not how Jesus does it. He doesn't make a big deal out of it. The only ones he appears to are the people who already believe. In fact, he's so subtle about it, half the time they could have missed it. Mary could have missed it, but the way that he said her name, the sound of his voice. The disciples could have missed it on the beach, but he used that same phrase, cast your nets on the other side, and the catch of fish confirmed it. The transformation that follows the resurrection is about as humble as Jesus' appearances. At first, the disciples are locked in the room. The resurrected Lord appears to them. So what do they do? They unlock the door. And they're still scared now. <laughs> A week later, he appears again, and Thomas is there, and he touches the womb. So what do they do? They go outside. But they go back to what they were doing before they knew Jesus, back to fishing. It's so humble. It's so quiet. It's so subtle. Our Easter celebrations miss the subtlety of the resurrection. 
You know, we, uh, we make a huge thing out of Easter. We have Easter lilies. We have the cross that's all flowered and it's beautiful and people get baptized. And we all, you know, all of us, we, we, uh, we've been given up. We've been on a special diet. We just have a huge meal. All the kids who gave up candy, they get, they get stuffed. All of us who gave up wine and beer, we start to drink. And we act like the resurrection changed the world overnight. But that's not how Jesus acts about it. For him, it's subtle. It's so subtle that if you're not paying attention, I guarantee you'll miss it. That's how it is for me. It's the only way I've ever experienced the resurrection. In 2015, I moved into West End, which is a really under-resourced neighborhood that has a lot of struggles. A couple years after I'd been living there, uh, a man named Mr. Boyd, he's 76, he asked me to start going on walks with him every single week. And we'd walk around the neighborhood several miles at a time. After about a year and a half of walking, one day Mr. Boyd came up to me, to my house, he knocked on the door, and he had a shoebox in his hands. And it said Johnston and Murphy on it. And I opened the door and he said, Pastor, over the last year or so, I've been looking at your feet. I think we wear the same size. I want you to have these. Well, I open up the box and there's these beautiful shoes. And I say, wow, this is an incredible gift. Thank you. And he says, oh, I know it's a good gift. You want to know how I know? And I said, how's that? He says, I know because it hurts me to give them to you. (laughs) And I tried to give them back. I said, Mr. Boyd, I don't want to hurt you. He said, no, no. That's how I know it's a good gift. Those are my favorite shoes. I keep them in the box. I only wear them once a year. I keep them shined. But I want you to have them. They're the best shoes I've ever had. Better than the ones my granddad gave me. And those were nice too. God rest his soul. The other day I was walking around Elmwood Cemetery looking for a grave. A year ago, one of our church members, Emery Barnes, was hit by a car walking to work and killed. I still don't understand. It was 7.30 in the morning. I don't understand how it happened. He was 6'5", 380 pounds. I don't know how anyone, you couldn't miss him. Anyway, when he died, his family, he didn't have insurance. His family didn't have money to bury him. And lots of families in West End go to ten dollars to $15,000 of debt just trying to get that beloved person in the ground. Well, my grandmother on my dad's side died a year prior, and she actually bought a plot at Elmwood that she didn't use. So I called my dad and I said, hey, could you donate that, you know, Granny's plot? And he said, yeah, yeah. So he did, and we got it set up. Well, about two days before the funeral, Elmwood Cemetery called and they said, Reverend Harper, we're so sorry, but Emory Barnes, he's too big to fit in your grandmother's plot. We hate to do this, but we have to move him to a different section of the cemetery. Is that okay? I said, that's fine. Finally, we had the whole service. We got him in the ground, but the family didn't go into debt, but they didn't have money for a marker of any kind. There's nothing that said his name. So a year after that, I was walking around the section of the cemetery trying to find this unmarked grave, and I couldn't find it. After about 45 minutes, I drove to the information counter, asked for some help. They gave me a map. They circled it. They said, okay, he's 1285, and you go this way. And then they said, you know what? Elmwood Cemetery is about the seventh largest cemetery in the United States. It's 412 acres, 
There's over 140,000 graves. Why don't you just follow us? We're going to get in this Tahoe. You just follow us. We'll take you out there. I said, oh, man, that would be great. So they get in their truck. I get in mine. We're going around. I'm looking at the map. Well, they take a right, but according to the map, it looked like we should go left. And they went a little ways and made another turn that seemed wrong. And then they hit a U-turn. We started going back the other way. They made two more U-turns. And then they rolled the window down, waved me up, and they said, Reverend Harper, we're lost. Do you know how to get to section 44? And I said, yeah, I've done done several funerals here. So they followed me out to block 44. I got out, and they offered me a job. Said they needed more people around who knew their way around Elwood Cemetery. (laughs) Well, we started looking around for that grave, couldn't find it. Now, there's not a marker with his name. But all over the cemetery, there are these pillars, concrete, about the size of a bread loaf. And on the top of it, it tells you what's on each corner. Well, so it says 1285, 1284, 83, 82. So we're looking for this pillar. Well, finally, we find it, but it's dug up and it's in the wrong place. All the other pillars don't match up. And they're frustrated. They say, all right, this is a job for Missy. We'll have to call her. She's the manager. She knows everything about these 140,000 graves. I was like, great. Well, Missy pulls up. She walks up the hill, and she says, sir, who are you looking for? I said, Emory Barnes. She said, oh, yeah, Urban Ministry, right? That's a big fella. We had to dig up the corner marker just to fit him in there. She said, come here, I'll show you. She took me over to a place where the grass was dead and hadn't grown, and she said, there he is right there. I know this might sound a little reverent, but I bursted out laughing. You see, Emery was a jokester. He was always pulling pranks on me. He was always trying to make me laugh. I knew that he was looking down, laughing at me through this whole entire saga. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Tyler Perry's Medea. Yes? Emery was Medea. He actually was. So Church Without Walls is the United Methodist Church of Urban Ministry. When I was pastoring the church, Emory would actually dress up as Medea to MC our youth talent shows. It was as terrible of an idea as it sounds. Uh, he would borrow one of Ernestine's dresses and wig and glasses, have a big old cigar in his mouth and a cane. And we'd have to have somebody ba- m- muting his mic back there because he wasn't very good at filtering. Always funny, often inappropriate, right? This is who Emory was. Well, one day Emory came to me, knocked on my door, and he said, Pastor, I want to have a men's retreat. Can we make it happen? Immediately, my mind was racing. This is a bad idea. A Medea-led men's retreat might get people closer to the devil. It ain't going to get nobody closer to Jesus, right? So I'm trying to think of how to get out of this. And finally, God answered my prayer, and I had a way. I said, Emory, we can do your men's retreat, but only under two conditions— First, you have to find 12 men who are willing to go with signatures. Second, you have to find a place where we can stay overnight for free. And he is so excited. He said, I can do that, Pastor. That's easy. In fact, I'll add one more. I will find those 12 men. I will find us a place and I will cook all the food and buy it too. Well, that sounded pretty good. Emory left feeling good. I stayed feeling good because I knew there was no way 12 men would want to go on a Medea retreat. It just wasn't going to happen. Right? Month went by, no Emory. Two months, no Emory. Third month, Emory came to my office with a list of 12 men. He had found a place where we could have a retreat overnight for free. Mm. 
So the day for the retreat came. We got in the church van, drove to all the men's houses. They each got in. And we were about to head out to the retreat. And he said, hey, pastor, we got to stop by Top Cat's house. Now, Top Cat is Emery's father. So we said, okay, we drive over to his dad's house. I let him out. He says, no, pastor, you got to come in too. I said, okay. So I get out. We walk up the, through the yard, through the door, and there's Top Cat sitting in his recliner with no shirt on, feet up, no shoes on, drinking beer at 930 in the morning. This is who Top Cat was. Emery wa- walks up, and this is what he said now. He said, uh, he said, Dad, I brought my pimp. I mean, my pastor here, right? Always making jokes. And he said, now, Dad, listen. We have a men's retreat today, and I promised I would buy all the food. I've been saving up my food stamps for three months, and I don't have enough to buy the chicken. Could, could I have some of your food stamps so that we can buy the chicken for the retreat? Pastor's here. He'll tell you it's true. I said, it's true. Top Cat's mouth broke into a huge grin, and he lifted up his toes and wiggled them. And Emery said, no, Dad, no. And Top Cat said, Emery, it's the only way. And he said, no, Dad, anything but that. And Top Cat said, that's what you got to do. I would love to share it with you, but you know what you got to do. And Emery said, anything but that. And I looked at those feet, and I tell you, just looking at them made you queasy, right? His toenails were so long, they curled. Yeah. Finally, he said, all right, Dad, all right, I'll do it. I'll give you a one-hour foot rub. This week, if you give me that, that snap card, but not a minute longer. And Top Cat clapped his hands and said, praise you, Jesus. And he grabbed his snap card and handed it to Emery. Well, Emery and I walked out back to the van. I put my arm around him and I said, Emery, if Jesus can walk, wash feet, you can rub them. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> we got into the van. We started driving the retreat. We stopped by Marino's, a grocery store. He ran in to get the chicken. He came back out. We got to the retreat. Now, he's, he was a good cook now, but the slowest cook you ever saw. If he started cooking at 12 for dinner, you'd be lucky to eat by 9, right? And that's where we were. He was sweating and cussing and hollering and dice this and cut that and telling everybody what to do. Finally, about 9 p.m., we sit down for the meal. Emery blesses the food, breaks the bread, passes it out. And, well, I'm cutting my food, and I am trying to cook up a real good insult, because Emery's love language is smack talk, and so I was going to give him something real good. And right as I put my fork in the chicken, I held it up to my mouth. He said, Pastor, this is going to be the best meal you ever had. And at the sound of those words, I recognized who it was. And when I tasted that food just for an instant, It tasted a little bit like bread and wine. Sometimes I think we've forgotten what Jesus sounds like. The disciples and Mary, they got to know him in flesh. They got to hear the way that he said their names and knew these phrases that he spoke. But you and I, we didn't get to know him like that. Sometimes we forget the sound of Jesus' voice. If you feel like you've forgotten, if like the disciples, the resurrection has you in relapse, if you can't believe it because it doesn't make sense to you, if there are days when you feel more atheist than Christian, if you look at the polarity of this country and the injustice of this world and you feel like giving up, 
if you've hit rock bottom so hard that you broke your legs, lift your head up. Don't lose hope. Look to the shore. If you know what to listen for, and if you have your eyes open, you'll see him. He's appearing around you every single day. He'll say a certain phrase or a certain word, and you'll know it in your heart that it's true. That's how it happens for me. A young woman paid $14 for her meal at the cafe. and She said, I believe in this place. And I said, Jesus Christ. Then an old man gave me a pair of shoes and he said, I know it's a good gift because it hurts me to give them to you. And I thought, my Lord. And then Emory Barnes, Medea himself, smiled at me and said, Pastor, this is going to be the best meal you've ever had. And I cried out, my God. When you experience the joy of God's abundance, your nets will just about capsize the boat. But the miracle won't be the abundance of the gift you've caught, but the fact that your nets didn't break. Come by urban ministry, give abundantly to the things that you believe in, give so much that it hurts you. Keep your ears tuned and your eyes peeled, and I promise you, you will experience the best meal you've ever had. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.